Welcome to the Booktopia podcast. I'm John Purcell. I'm sitting here with Sarah McDuling. We're very excited to have Matthew Condon come down to us from uh, Queensland to talk about The Night Dragon, which is his new book in uh, his fascinating chronicle of the underworld of, of Queensland, Brisbane. Uh, I'm terrified to cross the border. <laughs> <laughs> so you should be. <laughs> uh, can, I, can I start just with, with a... With a yeah, yeah, uh, a concerned consumer of, of Queensland's tourism. Um, <laughs> is is this over or is this still lingering? Are these are these crimes uh, and, and the corruption rooted out or is it just buried for a bit and will it return? Is uh, it safe for us to yeah. go there? <laughs> I think that's a fantastic question because, for example, Queensland and, and a lot of the territory I've covered in the books, uh, the sequence of books, involves a lot of unresolved events, murders, disappearances, stemming from a very volatile period in Queensland criminal history during the 1970s. Now, for example, the um, some of these crimes hang very heavy uh, on the conscience of Queensland, and so they should, um, unresolved for many different reasons through apathy of police, corruption, corrupt connections between police and criminal activity in that period. So they've been lingering for decades. And, you know, I've likened it to a, 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 a wound that just doesn't heal. Mm-hmm. And that was the case with the murder of Barbara McCulkin and her two young daughters in 1974. Uh, only in 2017 were the, the culprits, uh, Vince Dempsey and Shorty Dubois, found guilty of that crime. So we're talking, what is it, 43 years later, finally there's a resolution to that horrific triple murder. So, yes, these crimes linger and linger. Um, the McCulkin murders uh, uh, were linked to um, another tragic event uh, in 1973, the year earlier, that was the firebombing of the Whiskey Go-Go nightclub in which 15 people perished. Um, the, the McCulkin murders was a knock-on effect from that crime and, and several disappearances unresolved to this day are linked to the Whiskey Go-Go, which is the subject of my new book, The Night Dragon. So um, they are lingering around. They are waiting to be resolved. Uh, there are people out there that know what happened and that haven't come forward. Um, so, yes, it continues. The stench continues. And if you're, if you're a, um, a bright and shiny new detective uh, in the police force in, in, in Queensland. Are you reluctant to actually kick anything too hard for all this stuff to come out? Or and you just want to deal with what's what's going on now? Um, because everywhere you look, every every little bit you, you lift up to have a look underneath yes. will have some connection to something horrible. And you kind of... I mean, I would in that position, I'd be, I'd be really wanting to, to put a, like a full stop Yes. And to, to go, no, the police force as it is now is nice and clean. Um, there's no corruption. Um, and, and it's all businesses as usual. I won't be tainted by anything in the past. Uh, is that, do you think that's, that's happening? Because I mean, that would be my, my initial reaction as a, as a cop in that, in that situation to not be tainted with that brush because it just seemed like everyone was, was corrupt. That is exactly what's happening behind the scenes at the moment, um, in the Queensland police force. Um, you have finally, and it's taken the, the passing of, of generations of police, you now have a new generation of police finally that has enough distance from these crimes to not be tainted by the past. Mm. And they have a determination 
as you said, to put a full stop to it, to put a line in the sand on this and to resolve and move forward. So you have these groups of young detectives who are absolutely determined to resolve these matters um, for history. Mm-hmm. And, and as we speak, there are, there are several groups of detectives looking into multiple crimes from the 70s and trying to resolve them once and for all. And it has been said to me by one of those detectives, if we have to name and shame our own from the past, mm-hmm. that's exactly what we're going to do. So that's taken a generational situation yeah. to start afresh. They're fed up with having this corruption uh, and so on lingering around their profession. They're sick of it. And um, they're quite prepared now to name um, several of the corrupt officers who allowed murder to happen mm. back then. Um, many of those police have passed away, unfortunately. But the new generation says enough is enough. Let's clean up our mess and we'll move forward. But they've got to work with the fact that all that time has passed. Um, so, I mean, I just wondered if you'd tell us a little bit about your research and, like, the challenges you've faced with this book and the previous ones in the series and the people who've, you know, opened up to you and stuff. Um, it's, it, it, historical crime is always a challenge because, as you've intimated, it's a race against time. So uh, through the course of the nine years I've been researching this, involved in this project, several key people have died and many of them are in their 70s and 80s. Uh, but having said that, I, uh, with the new book, um, I was very lucky to win the trust of several um, former members of the criminal element are very closely associated with the primary characters in this book. So I've had, for example, um, in, input and information, in, invaluable really, from from one particular person who was associated with Odempsey and Dubois in the, from the 56, in the 60s and into the 70s and 80s, and I've had input from a, from a, another generation of of criminals who was associated with Odempsey uh, from the from the 1980s through to the 1990s. So I cover uh, 40 odd years of his criminal history thanks to the observations of very very close associates of his. So you know it's difficult. The challenge is to win the trust of these of these men mm-hmm. um, and to. Um, you know, I have vowed, as a journalist and a writer, um, you know, I have vowed not to identify them. Um, so the deal is uh, they give me the information as long as, as long as I protect them. And I think that's a fantastic deal in relation to getting the heart and the truth of the matter out there. Um, but to win people's trust is an ongoing battle. And, um, you know, I've been very fortunate. I would, I would consider these sources for this book... Um, I would consider them good friends now. We've been working on and off together now for a few years and they trust me and I trust them. So irrespective of what they did in their past, um, uh, you know, several of them are retired criminals, if you like, and others are are pursuing what they would call a straight or um, they call themselves squareheads now because they're pursuing... (laughs) Uh, a so-called normal life, but and uh, but reflect back on you know what they did and what others did, and it's it's perennially fascinating to find these people and to to hear their stories. Do they read the other books? It it just blows my mind how complex those relationships must be. Sorry, do they read the books? <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and, and bear in mind too that um, you know um, in in their new lives they're still 
they're still dogging out or ratting out a, a, a former friend. This is, it still puts them at risk. I mean, one of my sources had to move, uh, literally had to move town, move towns because he, his um, family life was threatened and he continues to be threatened to this day. I spoke to him just last week. Uh, because he ratted out on, you know, one of the major characters in this new book. So um, that's a complicated world that, 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 that it's difficult for, for a layperson to understand the loyalties and the betrayal and um, what that means in the underworld. Mm. Um, all that is a, a grist to the mill for this, this research. So with the, with the final... Um Sentencing, because they did their appeal and then they're, they're both locked away now, right? Yes. For good. Um, can you tell us a little bit how they were actually brought to justice? I mean, what were, we, we sort of talked lightly about it um, before the podcast, but I just want to hear you talk about this, the, the process of them actually getting done. Like, this is, this is what the book's about, and I just want to sort of get that, yes. that sense. Of- so what, what happened was, I mean, the murders of the McCulkins was the key um, uh, and and the resolution of those murders and the, the day of sentencing, which I'll talk to you about, was one of the most extraordinary things I've ever seen um, in my career, what happened on that day of sentencing, which effectively blew open the doors to a sequence of other crimes and gave us an insight, finally, after decades, into what happened back then. But um, So with O'Dempsey and Dubois, who were both serving um, triple life sentences... Um, they were the murder was in, murders were in seventy four. Uh, they were immediately um, suspects in the crime. They were seen at uh, they were the last to see the McCulkins at their home in um, Highgate Hill in Brisbane. Uh, so the word and rumor always was it was O'Dempsey and Dubois. In nineteen eighty, there was a um, coronial inquest into the McCulkin murders and and some other murders and the the coroner recommended that O'Dempsey and Dubois be charged with three murders. It went to the Crown um, Law Department and they 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 said there's not enough evidence to um, to pursue them in the courts. Uh, that's linked to the way the Queensland's being run at the time. That, that's right. These were the heady days of 1981-82. So um, there were no charges laid and the matter was put to rest. Uh, it wasn't until 2014, so we're looking at the 40th anniversary of the McCulkin murders, January 16, that two police officers, um, detectives, Mick Dowie and Virginia Gray, um, uh, on the day of the anniversary made a decision that they would re-pursue this investigation. Um, so they went and covered ground that was, that was covered in the lead-up to the coronial inquest in 1980, but the, but the key to their success was that um, was the passage of time for, for it to begin with, and they revisited several of the gang members that um, were intimate with O'Dempsey and Dubois in the 1970s, and one of those men, Peter Hall, um, initially he said he knew nothing about the crimes to, to Mick Dowie and Virginia Gray. Then he went away and thought seriously about it. He thought about his life, his marriage, his children... And uh, he said, um, I'm going to turn state witness and tell them everything I know. That was the key to turning the investigation around. And then there were two other key witnesses, Warren McDonald, who worked with O'Dempsey for decades and um, a former partner of O'Dempsey's, and they all became chief witnesses at the trial. Now, there's no 
bodies have ever been found. Um, and that's what burns very deeply with the police. They want to recover the bodies of Barbara and her kids for the family, obviously. Uh, but, but nevertheless, um, so without bodies, the trial went ahead and it was very, very powerful circumstantial evidence. And the jury had no hesitation in returning guilty verdicts on both men. So, uh, uh, which was incredible after all those years. And it's a credit to the police that they, that they revisited the case and worked so hard and um, achieved success in that. Um, what they did, incredibly, um, O'Dempsey lived in Warwick, which was where he was born and raised, which is a small town about 160 k's outside of southwest of Brisbane. Um, in the course of their investigation, they raided a number of properties owned by Vincent O'Dempsey. Um, they found, incredibly, it's like a boy's own story, they found uh, a buried um, um, shipping container in which O'Dempsey stocked uh, money, drugs, weapons, and they found some um, airtight 44-gallon drums buried on the property. And in one of those drums was the entire um, transcript of the 1980 inquest into the McCulkin murders oh, buried on the property. Oh, my God. Now, you think, why was that there? And I can only assume that it was that if O'Dempsey ever got pulled up on the issue, he could refer back and keep the story straight. Uh, of course, because you know, I wonder why you wouldn't just... Extraordinary. Yeah. yeah. So come sentencing, which was the uh, um, uh, first week of June 2017, um, O'Dempsey and Dubois are in the court. The court's packed. Uh, they've been found guilty by a jury of their peers for these murders. Um, and O'Dempsey, of course, famous for never uttering a word. During the inquest back in 1980, he said no comment to 47 questions, including what is your name? Whoa. No comment. So his famous phrase was loose lips, sink ships, never speak, never talk. What does he do at the sentencing? He asks the judge if he can address the court. I mean, this is so irregular. You know, he's waiting to go down for the rest of his life in jail. And he, 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 through, his, through his legal counsel, he says, I would like to talk to the court. Now, the judge prevaricated and said, well, let him make his little speech. So Dempsey gets up and says, I had nothing to do with the McCulkin murders. I wouldn't, why would I harm them? My co-accused had nothing to do with them. Oh, and by the way, I had nothing to do with the whiskey go-go firebombing. Now, no one had asked him that question. <laughs> so I'm in court and my jaw dropped from going, did he just say that? Oh, and I had nothing to do with the whiskey go-go firebombing in 1973. Now, incredibly, Judge Applegarth was scratching his chin and he said, Mr. O'Dempsey, that's very interesting that you should say that. And Applegarth challenged him, debated him on that issue in the court. Oh, my God. And said, look, Mr. O'Dempsey, uh, there was a lot of evidence that I didn't allow in during the trial, so it wouldn't prejudice you. But the trial is now over and you've been found guilty of three murders. So let me remind you that on page 895, and he gets the pages, he says there's evidence here that you were, in fact involved in the whiskey go-go firebombing that killed 15 people. So suddenly, as you know, I'm sitting there um, having listened, gone through the tri two trials, suddenly the door blows open to, the, to a judge saying there is evidence that 
killer Vincent O'Dempsey was behind the whiskey you go go as well. You go, this changes everything. Oh my God. I just got chills. So <laughs> because that because he chose to speak for 90 seconds in the court and he's never spoken, uh, a crack appeared in the wall and that was it. Lou yeah. slips really do think <laughs> And that opened the doors to the night dragon. Wow. Um, and away we went from there. So when, when um, you, you talk about the, 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 you, the people who are informing you about, about this um, new book, uh, they've, some of them have turned, what do you call square heads? Or yes, <laughs> square heads. Um, what were these guys doing? In that period, after after the murders, are they just crooks the whole way through, or are they are they turned legit somewhere along the line? I mean, he's got a, a container ship full of a container um, full of drugs and, and guns buried in his property, but you know, do they put a front on from that point, or do they just keep doing? Bad so, stuff? what happened in seventy three with the whiskey and seventy four with the McCulkin murders? You had this gang in Brisbane called the Clockwork Orange Gang, essentially. O'Dempsey wasn't technically a part of the gang. But he did jobs with members of the gang. Now, the murder of the McCulkins changed everything. I mean, I mean, in the criminal underworld, you don't kill women and children. I mean, it's a cliche. It's in all the movies, the gangster movies, but it's a fact. You don't harm, especially you do not harm children. And that changed the entire landscape for that group of men. They sort of scattered, uh, and that was the end of them as a cohesive criminal entity. Um, O'Dempsey essentially was on the run for a number of years, on the run as in he was moving around, he was a rolling stone, so, um, and, and came back ultimately when things, quote, settled down a little bit, but it took years for him to make that decision. Um, the other guys, some of them went to um, New South Wales, some of them settled in uh, Hawke's Nest near Newcastle, um, did their own individual things to survive, uh, and ultimately some of them went on the straight and narrow and ab- abandoned that life. Um, O'Dempsey, on the other hand, um, continued uh, with various criminal ventures and um, successfully um, produced um, annual marijuana crops uh, worth in the vicinity of $1 to $2 million per year um, on his properties outside of Warwick. Now... Can you explain to me how a man can successfully cultivate marijuana annually for over 20 years without coming to the attention of police? It is impossible to, to imagine that in reality. Uh, and to my mind and to those of his associates, there's absolutely no question he was, a, he was protected by senior corrupt police for many, many decades. Uh, until, as we discussed, the new generation comes along and says, "Enough's enough. Mm. Let's um, move forward." But when, when we were um, before this podcast, and we we're doing a bit of uh, a bit of signing, a bit of chit chat, you dropped a bomb on both uh, Sarah and I because we, we mentioned um, Trent Dalton's Boy Swallows Universe uh, as a as a fiction set, another one that's undermining um, Queensland tourism. Um, <laughs> in a nice way. In a nice way. I mean, actually encouraging, I think yeah, encouraging a, a whole other yeah, yeah. tourist. Um, but you said in that that, that the, uh, the the main linchpin king in that, uh, crime king in that book is this guy. Like it's all basically... Inspired all, by Because it, yeah. it's a fiction um, and he's all over the place. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. he was I'm, a kid at the time. I'm not going to speak too much on behalf of, of Trent because it wouldn't be right. But um, uh, But we have spoken in public together about... 
the fact that um, there is a there in the small town of Brisbane there is a cross pollination of the characters that I'm writing about in real life and the characters that he's fictionalised in his incredible novel. Yeah. And um, some of those guys are the same guys. Yeah. So it's definitely a novel because he killed off one of his own brothers. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> We're not putting it. And and you know you know everyone that meets. Um, Means Trent always looks at his hands. But there's, you know, there's, there's things right. that are indicators that this thing's a novel. That's uh, right. And, oh, it's and most definitely a novel. Yeah, definitely a novel. Um, but, you know, there are some things that he experienced uh, as a child uh, that is the exact period and people that I write about in my true crime books. Yeah. yeah. Small world. It is a, oh, yeah, it's a, it's a small and a dark, dark world. Uh, it's kind of fascinating. Fascinating. And I can understand but, why a novelist would, would go, like, I mean, you, you're journalist, novelist at the same time. Um, you managed to balance that for, for years. And then this enormous story landed on your lap. And I think I think I remember reading that you, you went, oh, I'll just do a, a book on this. Just mm. one. Just one. Mm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, this, is, this is worthy of the book. Um, and now it's nine years, is it? Is nine it? years and five books. Yeah. Wow. So it, yeah. And you've even written a book about the books. Like you've written a book about That's how right. you were coping with the whole process. Uh, so this is a big shift in in your I mean if you were if you were sitting back uh, in Sydney uh, trying to uh, get get on with the literati um, <laughs> and you're thinking what am I going to be doing in, in in 20 years you wouldn't have picked this no, no. absolutely not um, and you know I'm, I mean I moved from Sydney um, 15 years ago now uh, and it was a it was you know in many ways it was a great thing um, and of course you know I stumbled upon this project which has dominated so many years now of my life but um, you know moving out of Sydney and as you mentioned the so-called literati um, was the best thing that ever happened to me as a writer um, Brisbane is a you're very free um, the, the little uh, but the little but significant writing community we have up there is very very supportive um, there your fellow novelists and non-fiction writers they're the first to pat you on the back if you have a success or support you in anything you're doing. It's just such a different vibe. Mm. And um, you've just constantly feel really backed up and supported, which is a lovely thing to happen. And um, and you can work, and I can work um, un- unobstructed by... Um, I mean, I'm, I've got three children now and they keep me busy, but... Um, you know, you can work without the distractions of the so-called literary scene up there. You completely... People think, oh, it's only Queensland. That's fantastic. I love that. You're free. Mm-hmm. They leave you alone. <laughs> it's wonderful. And, you know, the evidence is in my productivity. I mean, I've published five books since 2013. So, um, you know, I'm not wistfully sitting back and contemplating my navel and the next novel and how what a, what a genius I am and how brilliant it'll be. <laughs> and I'll publish that in 10 years when it's ready. Um, you know, I'm now, you know, doing some real work. It's making... Um, it is making a difference to a lot of people. And um, mm. um, one of the greatest byproducts of doing these books has been to restore the dignity back to um, police hundreds of police whose lives and careers were destroyed by these corrupt men mm-hmm. um, to restore dignity back to former prostitutes, back to you name it. It's not, not pillars of society here. It's, 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 it's giving back um, 
goodness and honesty to genuine people who it's... were affected by this. It changed their lives. I did a, an event for the, um, All Fall Down, which was the third volume of the trilogy, and I had a man come up to me. Uh, he would have been in his early 70s with, with another younger man in his 30s, in his 40s. And he'd, he said, look, I just wanted to say to you, I was a former Queensland police officer. Um, I saw something in the early 1980s that I shouldn't have seen, and it destroyed my career. Um, I had a heart attack at 43. Um, it shattered my family life. Um, and I now drive a bus for the Brisbane City Council. And the young man with him was his son. And he said, look, um, I never understood what Dad went through. I always blamed Dad for the breakup of the marriage. I hadn't spoken to Dad for 20 years. And then I read your book. Whoa. And I went, oh, my God, that's what happened to my father. And now he's my father again and I'm his son again. So when you think of that, that a book can bring a parent and a child back together because finally some truth is out there, uh, I, you couldn't ask for more. You just From keep giving me chills. I got, yeah. the, I got them again just there. I feel like the ripple effect with um, your books, and, and I guess true crime writing in, in general, can be so extraordinary in that way, unearthing long, long-buried secrets that have, you know, just had this almost cancerous effect over time. What, where was I going with this? I but also the culture. Like the, yeah. Because <laughs> it's not... It doesn't... It, they don't have to be in the book. Like if you if you describing the culture out, yeah. and you're going okay, so if Dad was a good cop in this circumstance, how the hell does he get on? Yeah, you know how, how do you how do you make it through? There was a there's a bit in one of the earlier books about the guy in in um, in northern Queensland who was moved down to Townsville because mm. he started to go. Why are there so many drug dealers ending up up here? What's going yeah. on? This is this yeah. is northern Queensland. This shouldn't be happening. And and he was moved. Shoved and you know, and threatened, mm. uh, and, and it just—it's just awful. That—that's what we pay them to do. <laughs> we ask them to go and find find the criminals that's to look right. after them, and then they're told not to. That's right. Uh, and bullied. But then all these years later, you have people like yourself who and and the police force now uh, looking into it. And I think the, the the great appeal with this is that there's hope for justice, um, and. Do you think, in your opinion, like that with this book coming out, some um, evidence could be unearthed that might lead to finding the bodies of the McCulkins? Um, I don't know about that. And, and I, I have, I have um, received some information about um, what may have happened to the bodies that I don't, wouldn't like to share at the moment. Um, uh, it may be speculation, but it has a terrible ring of truth. So, you know, I'd hate to just have a guess on that. Mm. Um, of course, you know, it would be incredible finally for those bodies to be recovered. I'm not sure really if they ever will be, unfortunately. Um, in the new book, there is, you know, possibly um, an approximation of where they may be which is, it has been through several of my interviews and, uh, and, and piecing together this puzzle. Uh, and if you run it through logically, you go, well, the odds of that are pretty good. Um, and I think the police share um, my theory that I, mm. that I publish in the book about that. Uh, it's still a wide brown land out there where we think these, the bodies may be um, near Warwick itself, the town of Warwick. Um, 
And who knows? I know that McDowie, Detective McDowie, there's nothing more in his life that he would like to achieve than to find those bodies. And in saying that too, there are former gangsters who worked very closely with O'Dempsey and their passion too is to recover the bodies. This is an obsession with some of them. Mm. Um, so, you know, over the passage of time, they're now old men. They've got grandchildren. Their, their outlook on life has completely changed. They did things in their past that they regret, but that's life, you know, that we all do that. And they now talk amongst themselves. I mean, Dempsey's securely, he will die in jail. They say he is exactly where he should have been 40 years ago. Uh, and that some of them have even said, I will go to jail and I will offer his family cash to try and get him to tell me where the bodies are. Wow. Essentially. So there is a great collective um, hope that the bodies will be found. Bear in mind there are several other bodies linked to O'Dempsey and there are several investigations happening as we speak into um, cold case murders from the early 1960s um, through into the uh, 1970s into the 1980s. There are several cases that remain unresolved, but police are working on them quite literally as we speak. In 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 your investigations, there, there were the uh, there's the corrupt cops. There's the preferment of people who are on the in the joke. Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh, above others, uh, the, the the bent get high rise. Um, there's uh, the brothels. There's the gambling. There's um, you know, being thugs. There's burglary. There's all these other things. All the all, and it's being monitored, run by the by the state, you know, by the police. But. I think, it, it, did you not start to find even worse things as you went in? There was sort of um, pedophilia rings and this kind of stuff on top of it. Are you, do you get to the point where you're going, if I keep digging, I'm going to find something even worse? Like, is there anything, is there any point that you're going to go, I can't cope with this? You have to keep going though. To yeah, um, I mean, I have this weird feeling, John, that you're reading my mind because, or that you're spying on me or something <laughs> because in the last six months, um, I'm starting to put together information that what I've uncovered is just small she's compared to what was really going on. That in fact, there was a there was another level above the joke that was going on, and that involves international um, drug smuggling. That involves um, a group of men so powerful, corrupt police, that they compromised almost every Royal Commission into them from the National Hotel Royal Commission in 1963 onward, into the 80s. There were two senior Queensland police that I'm told from a former Premier of Queensland. These two senior police in 1979 were set to be charged major drug importation. So what happened? The Williams Royal Commission was happening at the time into drugs um, and the um, Federal Narcotics Bureau was pursuing these two corrupt police. What happened? By 1980, um, the Federal Narcotics Bureau was dismantled. So the body chasing these two corrupt police was in fact pulled apart by the, at, on the orders of the Prime Minister, oh Malcolm God. Fraser. So. 
If you can imagine having that much sway and influence that you can actually dissolve the very body of law enforcement that is pursuing you, that's the level of what we're looking at. Holy crap. And how many, how many, I mean, it seems crazy to even ask you how many books you've got planned out because, you know, when you first started, you thought you were doing what? Like, That's is, right. is this now life's Ball work? Park? <laughs> uh, well, it could be not infinite, but it could certainly see out my career mm. easily. Yeah. Uh, I would love to do a book on um, former corrupt police commissioner Frank Bischoff. He was commissioner from 58 to 1969. Um, I exposed him as a pedophile in my books. There is so much to that man and his story that is the bedrock of what happened later on. Mm -hmm. So that could be very early in the sequence of events. He honed his craft in uh, Brisbane during the Second World War, um, where he learnt the art of um, um, uh, kickbacks from prostitution, um, illicit grog, gambling, etc. So he honed his fine skills during that period on of Brisbane during wartime. Mm-hmm. That alone would be a fascinating book. Yeah. Um, there's a book that I may write next on simply, which I've tentatively called The Bodies Left Behind, and it's all the cold cases Yeah, great. Uh, mm-hmm. that have links to this same group of criminals and corrupt police. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the 50th anniversary, for example, of the horrendous murder of a gay man in Brisbane called Gary Venemore. Um, on, on one night near the end of um, 1968, he, he was a travel agent, very flamboyant. Uh, he started a, um, a big night on the drink at the top of Queen Street, if you can imagine, in Brisbane City, and drank at all the bars and saloons, working down Queen Street, and he ended up near Fortitude Valley. So you're going from high class at the top end mm-hmm. to the seediest drinking saloons at the bottom end. He was seen in a club called the Playboy Club. He was last seen there. I've I've interviewed a prostitute who sat next to him and had drinks with him literally minutes before he left the club and vanished and was murdered. So um, in the course of my investigations for this new book, I've spoken to former criminals who've given me information about police threatening them with death if they did not... um, uh, toe the line with cor- the ways of corrupt, the way the corrupt police wanted it to happen, and these particular officers threatened them with a manner of death that was identical to the death of Gary Venemore, and not not just to the physical what actually happened to that poor man, who was who was beaten and bludgeoned with um, a piece of wood and then thrown unconscious but alive into the Brisbane River where he drowned. But um, these men have threatened other criminals in the exact location that Venomore's body was found. So you've got a modus operandi, similar threats over time that have happened, which points towards police involvement in the murder. Mm -hmm. And at a recent event, one of Venomore's distant relatives approached me and said, would you like to do some work on the death of Gary in 1968? So there's people out there, families that want answers, you know, and there's, you know, there's 10 cold cases I can fill that new book with. Yeah. And it may prompt people to come forward. Or maybe I can join some dots for these families. I'm not sure. But um, um, there, there are plenty of... The, the books are like buses well, look, 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 at the bus stop. Well, I mean, I want to I read all of them. Yeah, yeah. And but, I'm thinking like Matthew Condon with Sarah and Julie. 
You know, oh it's not farming them out. You know, oh, absolutely. Like, 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 good Jane idea. Patterson. Become good the idea. James Patterson of true crime. <laughs> <laughs> but do you think um, the time may come, like perhaps years away, uh, that you would write a novel again? Yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a, uh, something unusual happened. Uh, I went to a wonderful, the Burdekin Writers' Festival, way up in north, far north Queensland, in the little township of Eyre, which is inland from Townsville. And they're a beautiful group of people and they run a really lovely country writers' festival. And they invited me last year. It's like the third time I've been up there. And they put me on a panel whereby um, the the facilitator um, wanted to discuss The Trout Opera, which was my novel from, my God, twelve, my last novel from 12 years ago. And I had not looked at that book since it was published in 2007. And so we started discussing the novel and I started thinking for the first time about fiction again, mm. having been embedded in this horrific non-fiction. And then she read a passage from the book and it was like hearing it for the first time. Mm. Wow. And I said to myself, I thought to myself, and I'm, you know, I'm not big noting myself, but I went, that's not too bad. <laughs> You know, I thought if I, if someone else had written that and I'm hearing that, that's that's all right. That sort of works, mm. and that led me back to looking at the book for the first time. And I thought, I got to come back here one day. I think it would be exciting if you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, particularly because you may you may have just changed as a novelist over. I mean, you, you, you would have had yeah. to, but like but that, um, experience but that experience yeah what it would have, what it would yeah, do what to might a crime happen? what might right now what, what what might i produce yeah, that's yeah. a really good because you're almost like balzac now <laughs> <laughs> the human comedy you've seen it all <laughs> and i did have an, an idea too um um i read some fantastic fantastic sequence of novels by an american writer called greg isles uh the natchez trilogy and they're th- a thousand pages mm-hmm. each and it's this amazing story um, of lawyers and crime and gangsters in the deep south of America. And he's done this epic three-volume. And I read it and I thought, that's my story. Yeah. Like, this is what I'm doing, but I'm doing it in nonfiction. Yeah. And I thought, wouldn't it be an incredible novel to mm. do this epic, epic thing over decades that, like you know, I, that has been in my brain for nine years? And you have the freedom to walk to places you don't know about. That's exactly right. Yeah. That's right. I I think it would be extraordinary if you did one day decide to do that. So are we signing up for like 12 books in this series and then... <laughs> Should another? we decide it just yeah. now? <laughs> <laughs> but give me a break. I've got to, you know... Um, I'm only human. There's too much work to do. I mean, when I first got involved with this, when I first met the former corrupt police commissioner, Terry Lewis, 1st of February 2010, I went to his house... Out of sheer curiosity, someone, a mutual friend, said, "Look, why don't you just meet with Terry? He he wants to write his book, well, as in someone would ghostwrite it for him." And I went, "Gee, you know, I don't want to be a ghostwriter, but Terry Lewis is in his eighties, and how could I not just go and say hello and have a cup of coffee?" Well, he never offered me a coffee, but <laughs> when I walked, he 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 appeared. Um, at the front door of his house, there was a fly screen. I saw him through the fly screen, this old man through the fly screen. And he opened the fly screen door. And I, I remember as we speak, I can see it in slow motion. I stepped into that house 
And I thought, this is going to dominate my life for seven or eight years. And it's now been nine years. Amazing. I just, just knew the second I was just half a leg into the threshold and I thought, I'm, I'm entering this infinite pit. What a fateful moment. We are so happy you did, Matthew. Yeah. Uh, and thank you so much for coming and talking to us. It's been such a great pleasure to talk to you. Oh, it's so my pleasure stories, to be stories here. within stories within stories yeah. and stories. And then there's all these ones that we've got left to read. So this is brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Thank well, thank you, you so much for having me. I, lo- I love your Booktopia podcast. I actually listen to <gasps> you them. You listen to it? I certainly do. And, um, you know, you're doing a great thing for books. So thank you. Thank you so much again. And you can get hold of all of Matthew's books at booktopia.com.au right now. Thanks for listening to the Booktopia podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to us on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if your eyeballs need a workout, check us out on YouTube at Booktopia TV. And don't forget for all books featured on this episode and all episodes of the Booktopia podcast, head to Booktopia, Australia's local bookstore at www.booktopia.com.au. Thanks for listening.